Hello and welcome to the Performance Through Health podcast. We aim to inspire and educate our listeners through engaging conversations on all things health and fitness, mindset, business and philosophy. My name is Martin McPhillamy and I'm your host and I hope you enjoy today's episode. That's a skill in its own, isn't it? It's a skill that I've learned. Welcome back to the Performance Through Health podcast. And today is my first episode where I'm with, I'm going to call you a not so strange stranger. So my housemate and uh, Josh and Livia, both vegans, and they they get meals from Sylvia. Is it your partner? Yeah. Sylvia, your partner, she does some fantastic meals that uh, are all vegan, uh, they're gluten-free. They if, can they be. Need, if they need to be, you just get all, all catered to to whatever the needs are. Yeah. Uh, so so Josh is a, is a sort of guy who's very good at networking and he loves to have a conversation like myself. And he rings me when I'm sat there. Actually, I was recording the podcast at the time, and he rang me and said, "Martin, I've got a guy who's uh, who's who's going to be awesome for your podcast." And he's like, "His, his name's Bear. He uh, he's, he's worked with Bear Grylls. He's he's been in the army. He's, he's done this. He's done that." It's like, "Do you want him on the show?" I was like, "Yes, of course I do." So. Welcome to the show, Bear. Thanks, Martin. <laughs> Happy to be here. Yeah, we appreciate you coming over. Um, obviously, a little bit early today, so I weren't quite ready, but we're here now. I'm excited to chat. So, Bear, obviously, I don't know a lot about you, so I can't really introduce you to the show myself. So, if you want to just give a quick introduction about your journey, and I'm going to delve in, and I'm just going to pull things out and be, be interested. Yeah, sure. Um, well, first question I always ask is, um, why Bear? Yeah, why Bear? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I'm not built like a bear. Um, I could sleep all winter. I could satisfy that criteria. And I like fish. But it goes back to when I was six. My dad died. And I was one of ten kids. Nine mm. brothers, one sister. And it was bedlam at the house. No one at the cottage on the farm. Nobody was telling me what was going on. And I was the middle one, but the smallest. And really inquisitive. So I wanted to know stuff and nobody was telling me. So I thought, you know what? Bugger this, I got my dog and I took off um, to what everybody now refers to as the bear cave. It's nothing more than a sandstone um, railway siding with a, with a break out of it, a fracture. Yeah, and it's left a little hole in the wall. Um, to get to it, you have to go off what's called the black pad, which was made up of spoil from the coal mine yeah. next door. So the railway line split the village, the farm on one side, the mining on the other, mining, mining village on the other. We were on the farm. The black pad is just a path that takes you from one to the other under a arched bridge. And um, but like I said, to get to the little cave, you've got to come off the pad through some hawthorn. All the palms out there will know what hawthorn <laughs> is, quite thick and thorny. And, um, and then a ditch and maybe only less than a metre of long grass and scrub. And then there's this cutout. Okay. So I'd taken it on myself, even from being age four and five, to get my dad's rasping file and chisel and one or two other bits and bobs and make little nooks and crannies and shelves in this place. And it was my den. Me and my dog, Bess, would always be in there, especially when it was raining or snowing. And... Um, so we go back to the funeral and nobody's telling me I can't get to know. There's a whole bunch of people who I didn't know, a whole bunch of people that I did. Um, but I wasn't getting answers. So I took off okay. with Bess. She was heavily pregnant at the time. Um, and we went and stayed in in the cave. And um, 
a 91-year-old, we're going decades in front now, a 91-year-old guy called Doug Emery called me about five, six, uh, no, even, no, nearly a year ago. Okay. And he, he said he'd taken a long time to find me, but eventually through the army, he tracked me down. And then he found a family member um, who was my oldest son, and he gave him my number. And he said he'd come upon this, his dog had wandered into this little thing, this little nook and cranny. And he was intrigued because he remembers the story from way back from when I was called Bear. What happened was I was gone six days. And, and you were how old at this point? Six years of so age. So you were six years of age, you yeah. and your dog. You'd gone, you disappeared for six days. Yeah. Um, and I remember the, my earliest childhood memory is sitting on a an arched stone railway bridge. And um, I remember seeing all these people in a long line setting off from the cottage, um, corner to corner across the wheat fields, the cornfields. And they were shouting my Christian name, Andrew. Yeah, okay. And they were got sticks and whistles. There was cops. There was miners from the village. And the, as they went across, the line got broader and broader till it filled the whole field and people five, ten meters apart, ten yards apart. And they got dogs as well. And I can remember sitting with Bess on the railway bridge thinking, well, that's a bit daft because I'm here. <laughs> Why are they? And I've had, I'd already been back down to the cottage and stole half of a pie. And um, I was hungry. Um <laughs> But all the other times, I was um, roasting turnips and potatoes. I'd got a little spit in there and a round ring of stones and a grill on it. And um, I, and, and so Doug Emery, this 91-year-old, he's still there. I checked last week. Um, he found this place, and he even found in it a candle with a saucer and a torch and a penknife. And he found a square or a rectangular recess that I remember doing with the rasping file. He's got a point. Yeah. And poke in and break bits out and then shave it off. And in there, just barely fitting, is an, uh, a 1972 Hamlin Children's Encyclopedia. <laughs> what? No way. And and it was inscribed to me from my mum and my dad. It was from the Christmas before. So Christmas before my dad died. Um, so whereabouts in the UK is this then? It's, it's Yorkshire. So this is up in Yorkshire, yeah. and this is like a, out in a farm, I'm guessing. Are yeah, yeah, it's a it's a farm. Um, it's an, a um, government experimental husbandry farm. Yeah. Um, so they practice with different crops and crop rotation and all that kind of stuff, and they've got dairy section. And uh, so in the morning at four and four o'clock, four half four thirty, I'd get up with my dad because that was my time with my dad. Yeah. And then when he'd when he'd gone into the um, milking parlours to sort out all the dairy cattle, I'd then cut back and go to my cave and or my little cutout, and I'd read my book and I'd talk to Bess, and we'd figure out what we're going to do before school starts. And um, so it was a natural place for me to go. It mm. was it was a safe haven. Yeah, right. And uh, after six days, uh, another guy on the farm um, from another there was three or four big families on the farm um, and there was a Hill family and the guys walking back after they'd almost given up the search, checking frog ponds in the woods. Um, it's the Northern end of Sherwood forest. Yeah. Um, and they checked all the pads where all the timber where was and um, they couldn't find me and they, and it, they'd almost given up. And then he's in bed with his wife 
John Hill, and he says, I know where he is. All of a sudden just came to him. Yeah. And he called, there was only three phones in the village, the mine manager, the vicar, and the farm manager. And he ran up to the farm manager, and he called the mine manager, and the mine manager went next door but one to the police station. And there was a Bobby on, on nights, yeah, just right. by chance. So they came to me, and they were, I was killed up with Bess, and now 11 pups. Oh, wow. Yeah. And... um. And I even managed to save the runt of the litter. It was the littlest, weakest one. It reminded me of me because it chew on everything. Um, <laughs> it was a bit of a fighter. And and I managed to keep it. And um, that was the only dog that I was allowed to keep. They got rid of the other 10, two other people. Yeah. So the, the local press, which was called the Chad, the Chronicle Advertiser, um, they put on the headlines, Bear Child Found in Cave After Six Days. <laughs> And that what was a headline. It. History was written. Yeah. What a headline. And, uh, and I kind of liked it. I thought, well, that's all right. It's a cool name, Bear. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not the biggest in the patch. So even if they hear my name, Bear, they're going to think twice about scrapping with me. <laughs> of course. And um, it didn't always work. <laughs> yeah. And that's where Bear came from. So being uh, from the you know, the age of six, it sounds like you you knew how to cook, you knew how to get outdoors, you you know you liked to have a bit of time on your own uh, with 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 animals. I'm guessing dogs. Uh, so how how does you know, that's a that's a particular certain type of personality type, right? Sure. How has that shaped your your life going forward? Oh, massively. Um, well. the the looking after myself came from two books that my dad gave me that, just, that are in the cave as well. They're in a, a sack, a, a woolen sack, a grain sack. And one is called The Thinking Man's Book of Things to Make and Do. Okay. Um, and the other one is like a, a history of the British Empire book. And um, so I learned to have to whittle bits of wood with a knife and have to make fire with a bow and bits of wood. And, and, uh, and I loved it. But... I kind of thinking back now, what is it that made me so different? Now, I didn't find out what made me different until 2014. Mm. Although my mum gave me a clue on a deathbed in 2004, but she didn't tell me the whole thing. Um, I'll get to that in a bit. But then, so I, I kind of, I was different. I liked different stuff to my brothers. I'd, I'd never smoked. I've never even touched a cigarette mm. with my fingers. I've never held one. I've got phobia about it. <laughs> I very rarely drink. Um, and, and for a time, I was maybe 10, 15 years off, off any kind of alcohol. Yeah, I was really. just into a, a super fitness phase and playing rugby over in the UK and in, a, in South Africa. Um, so as I say, I, I didn't know I was different then, but I know now why I'm different and, and what made me who I am. Yeah. Um, well, that's a. We won't. We won't go into why just yet. So we'll, we'll hold. We'll hold that tension for a little bit. So, um, it made you who you are. So, what was the route that kind of took you the pathway that you you went? So, you mentioned the army. Was was that always uh, you know an area you were going to go into? Did you, was I, that I something previous before that? I didn't know. Um, I was going to go in there. It, it, again, we kind of leapfrog from six years of age to twelve. And I was only one of two kids in the village who passed 11 plus, okay. which was an exam that said you were either clever enough to go to grammar school or to secondary modern, as mm. it was called then. And I went to grammar school. But at 12, I mean, there was, there was 10 of us. 
And my mum couldn't afford the uniforms or the kit that I needed. And and I spent one Sunday afternoon looking in the co-op window, thinking, I I need all of that that's in the window, even a tie. And um, and I thought, well, there's no two ways about it. I've got to go and get a job. So I went to the newsagents. Um, I got two paper rounds in the morning. I had a paper round at night. There were only evening round in the village. And then I worked in the shop for an hour in the morning as well. And um, and sometimes at weekends on a Saturday and Sunday morning as well, as long as it didn't interfere with my school rugby. And I'd run, because I, I worked late in the morning, or late-ish, I'd run six miles to school. Mm. And the best way was in a straight line across two farms and a river. And it was kind of, that, that kind of stuff... It's character building. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's you say six, six miles. Six miles there and six miles back. So it's like a ten k ten k run there and back pretty much every single yeah. day, which is which is a distance. Yeah, yeah. And then and, that's where I came into the military for the first time. I got this book from the library, and I thought I, I can't run with a co-op satchel, a leather satchel that's bigger than me. It's bonkers. It's got one strap and it's hanging on one side. <laughs> My paper rounds bad enough. So I learned how the British soldiers carried their pack high up on the shoulders, yeah, it was right. just a pack of, of personal items and a blanket or a roll mat. Yeah. And and it was crisscrossed across the shoulders with two straps like today's backpacks that are far too big for the kids. But but that's how it was. So I went to Cobblers and I had saved up enough to get my satchel rehashed and re redesigned. And now I could run fast with it and get there on time. And um, I remember I used to have to stand outside assembly because I was never in time to go into assembly. <laughs> and I'd stand at the back behind the curtains with the Catholic kids who weren't allowed in assembly. I'm thinking, what the... <laughs> and again, when I think back now, that's bonkers. Yeah. Why weren't the Catholic kids allowed in, sem- in yeah. assembly? Now we've got all denominations and cultures and religions in there. Um, so at 12, I went to grammar school. Um, but again, I wasn't getting on with any of my brothers or sister and they'd they'd nick my money, they'd oh, steal really? it from my shoes and go and buy cigarettes or whatever they were doing. And um, and I thought, no, I'm out of here. So I left home. I went and saw my mum at the shop. Met her outside Super Save where she worked as a yeah. checkout woman. And and I told her, I, I have to move out for both our sanity. And and I'm not going to achieve at school if if I don't do it. Mm, okay. And um, so I did. I. I moved in with a friend from school and his his mum and dad who ran the miners' welfare. Yeah, and they, they gave me my own room. Um, they made me dinner every day, but that was the only meal I got from them. Um, I kept myself to myself, and uh, the son Paul and I really hit it off and played rugby together. And um, but again, he did his thing, and then I was away doing my thing, climbing trees and yeah. figuring out where n- moss grows. How do you find north? What do the stars mean? And so I was out there as an army cadet. I learned a lot about that. I was in the St. John's Ambulance as well. So I'd do anything extracurriculum mm. to keep me from sitting in a room on my own at nighttime with no TV or uh, or anything like that. And, you know, I didn't have a record player or a tape deck. or No distractions. Yeah, things. yeah. So I'd do anything to distract me from that and take me and keep me busy and learn stuff. And then at 16... Um, I got a shock because my score grades weren't great. I could have scraped into lower sixth mm-hmm. and stayed on for two years and then probably gone to uni. But my my grades were borderline and I didn't know how I'd cope 
at lower sixth. So I went out and got a mining scholarship and I became a coal miner. So this is back in 70s? Yeah. So coal, uh, coal was big then in the UK, wasn't coal it? Coal was huge. Especially was, in Yorkshire. Yeah. yeah, and it was National Coal Board at the time, yeah. soon to become British Coal, um, round about Thatcher's era. Yeah. Bless her. And, um, and, I, and at 18, I was on a coal face as high as this table, 37 inches. Ooh. And so I developed a really strong right hip and right shoulder because <laughs> I was that was my favourite side to lie on when I was on pick and shovel on a coal face. And um, there was some machinery coming in at the time, but I was on a stint to start with, uh, which was eight yards of coal mm. and then 37 inches high. And you'd, you'd chop and drill and blast um, to one and a half yards going yeah. forwards. And so then what sort of space are you in when you're doing this? So I'm just trying to think you now for the audience that are listening, like to, to try and picture what mining was like in those days compared to what it's like here in WA where you've got big machinery. Yeah. It's completely different. Well, the, yeah, it is. I mean, the tunnels were just a normal-sized tunnel like you see on the tube. Not yeah. as big, but this similar size and shape. But once you got to the coal face, imagine your kitchen table and then put another two end on end. And that was the space that I had to work in. That was my working area. Yeah, and you're picking in pick, there. Pick and shovel, yeah. It's all day. Pick and a shovel. 12 hours a day? Uh, no, in those days it was uh, eight, and then they later brought it down to seven and a quarter hours underground. Yeah. And then, which was bonkers. It was a tr- dream of a job. <laughs> got, still got two-thirds of your day to go at. And people um, moan about sitting I moan about sitting in an office for seven and a half hours of a day. I know, Jeez. it was crazy. Um, but quite often I'd do overtime as well. In September 1980, there was a really big event. Um, we had a we had a fault at one end of the coal face, and it was my turn to work at the end of the coal face where it meets the tunnel. And there was a roof collapse, and there was four of us. We'd been um, plugging a hole above the props and the, the pit props and bars that hold the roof up, and we'd been stacking timber like um, like you do with Jenga. Mm-hmm. and to fill the hole and consolidate it so it didn't cave in, but it caved in. Now, I wasn't trapped in the roof collapse per se because the timber that was already in there made kind of a skeleton that, that kept the thing from crushing us in our entirety. Um, but what I'm was a little prop, like um, they call them a milk bottle prop, hydraulic prop. You, it's, it, it's like um, a, a car jack, a big car jack. Yeah. And you pump it with a handle. And that pushes a bar up to the roof and it holds the roof up. Yeah, okay. That, yeah, yeah. With the pressure of the collapse, it flicked out and 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 shot across towards me. And it hit me in the face. Jeez. In my, my right eye socket. Um, you, obviously, these people can't see it, but you can see some blue scarring. Yeah, I just noticed there. now, just above where your eyelashes as yeah. well. Yeah, so I can see that. I had an indentate, indented fracture of the eye socket and cheekbone and my nose was broken lost a couple of teeth so it you'll know from your rugby days that an head injury looks way way worse than it is especially on a rugby player because yeah. an head injury is nothing yeah it's nothing in there <laughs> um and i looked messy and i wasn't i, I went into shutdown and I, I was hardly breathing and they decided that i was a lost cause and they covered me up on a stretcher while they recovered the three other guys that were trapped they just thought you were that was it. Yeah, they uh, because like I say, I've got this huge indentation on my yeah, right yeah. socket, yeah. and and my eye is almost protruding out of it. Oh. 
and because my eye socket is ripped open, I can't close my eyes, so my eyes look in through the hole. Yeah. And through the tear. Um, I went into hospital, and um, they, they came back to the stretcher to give me to the rescue team, who had now come, the regional rescue team, and say, you need to just take him out, and th they'll do the thing. They've got the fridge sorted out for him when you get out there. But when they went to the stretcher, I wasn't on it, and they couldn't understand why. And it's because I'd come round a little bit and figured out in my disorientated state, I need to get as far away from what's just happened as I can. Yeah, okay. And so I started on all fours, working my way out the tunnel. They find me after about 50 yards or so, and I'd, I'd passed out again. Yeah. And um, so they realized I was still alive, and they took me out on the stretcher. And um, when I came round in hospital, they explained to me what had happened. I had a frame on my head, and they'd done like um, some sort of jigsaw puzzle type thing to pick up the big pieces of bone and bring them back to the surface with self-tapping screws Ooh. through a frame. And they, they keep screwing like a bit of wood. Uh, the screw goes in as far as it can, but then the wood starts to come up the screw Yeah, because you, that's how you want it to be. And that's how they fixed it, the jigsaw. I'm not too weird, but I'm <laughs> symmetrical now. Yeah. You, because you, they did it off a mould off the left-hand side of my face and then punched it inside out and put it on my right to try and build up what was broken. It's about five or six big bits. Yeah. That's pretty good um, for the, back in the seventies. Yeah, it was pretty radical what they did. Um it was techniques that they'd learned from the armed forces. And um I when I woke up I got this frame on and they wouldn't let me out of bed and um I bet you were menacing there though, weren't you? Trying oh, to trying to get out. <laughs> I was the worst patient in the world. And to the point where I, I found a new skill. I've always been a bit of a rogue and a, and a bit of a pushing the envelope a bit. I'd never do anything purposely to upset people or to hurt them. Hmm. But if something's not nailed down, it belongs to me. So <laughs> I'm not, it's not theft. It's just reappropriating equipment. It's tools, finding tools. Yeah, it is, finding tools and stacking them. And um, So I, I stole a coat, a, a, a doctor's coat and a pass that was on the pocket and put it on, it was miles too big for me, but I walked out. Why I thought nobody had noticed, because I've still got a metal frame on my head. So I'm still not with it. But I got on the bus to Nottingham. Yeah, okay. And My town. Uh, I was studied in Nottingham for, uh, I lived in Nottingham for 10 years. Did you go to Trent? Right to Trent. Trent Uni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I did my mining degree. Yeah, really? Well. Yeah. yeah. I was a president of rugby club at Trent. Were you really? Yeah, 2011. 2010-2011. Oh, yeah. I know a few good players who played at, um, at Nottingham University and Nottingham Trent University yeah, yeah. at the time. Nottingham had a great team mm -hmm. as well. Um, yeah, so I went to the recruiting office. And because up until that time, I was only TA, which was Territorial Army then. Now mm -hmm. it's called Army Reserve. Yeah. And so you were a weekend soldier. And I loved it. I loved my weekends, as long as it didn't interfere with rugby. <laughs> And um, and I went and saw my duty sergeant Keith Burns, and and he was a bloke who who loved me and hated me in equal measures, but lots of them. And because I volunteer for everything, <laughs> I was up to doing anything. He did break me a couple of times, and um, but I went in and he sat there and he went, what the hell happened? And I said, oh, I had a bit of a prank. He thought it was rugby, mm. and I said, no, I got buried underground. I said, and I've come to a decision. I've got my HND, 
But I don't want to work down there anymore. I can think of more glamorous ways of getting killed. That's what do you mean? <laughs> and I gave him the local Chad newspaper again, the famous Chad. And I gave it to him. And on page four, there's a paragraph right at the bottom in a column that said, four miners trapped in roof collapse. I said, not even a name. That's no glamour in that. Yeah, yeah. I said, so I'm joining as a reg. Okay. As a regular. And he just said, no, not with that on your head. You're not. Um, go and take everything back that you've stolen because they'll be looking for them to the hospital and, and report back in. And when you get rid of that, we'll talk again. And I couldn't wait to get rid of that thing. <laughs> and six weeks later, I'm back in that recruitment office and he couldn't, the medical, the MO medical officer couldn't find any reason to say no. And, and indeed, when he, when I was naked, having the physical with about half a dozen more blokes, first I remember is the factory bus taking the girls to the textiles factory. There was nobody sat downstairs because they all stu- sat upstairs because they know that's where the squaddies are getting their physical done on a Monday morning. <laughs> and then the second one is, I'm, I'm the smallest, but the MO measured my length of my arms. And then he made me make a fist and he said, oh my God, what a find. He said, you're in the boxing team, son. Yeah, really? Yeah. And he put me, so I was in the, I was in the boxing team before I was even in the army. <laughs> Is that because you could move, but you had good reach? And I had massive big, reach big, and big, big paws. Fists. Yeah, I've got big hands, haven't you? Yeah, they're too big for me. I'm sure they were around the wrong box. <laughs> they, I queued in the wrong area again. Um, and that was it. I joined infantry, Worcester and Sherwood Foresters, the Woofers. And, um, and I was having a good old time. And then I came across the regiment, the SAS. I'd read up a little bit about them. I'd seen them one time and um, in 1982 on Pebble Island, they absolutely trashed an Argentine Air Force base. Um, and unluckily for me, I'd been sent, because I'd just done parachute um, course, the P Company, and got my wings, my parachuting wings. And, um, and I thought I was going home out of Colchester. I'd just been badged. So I'm now... I'm now effectively a parachutist in the British Army mm. with a maroon beret and my special cat badge, which I can wear even at my own regiment, and um, and a chip on each shoulder. So now I'm a well-balanced individual as well. <laughs> and uh, and when I came out, they stopped us. The, the MP stopped us, and I thought, why is there an MP on the? Where's the corporal? Or where's the where's the squaddies? And it was an MP, and he said, names Maguire and Kirk. Yeah, unlucky. 16th Air Assault Brigade. There's a Land Rover over there. You're going to go to South Cerny. And then you're going on your holidays to the Falkland Islands. I said, I flipping hate Scotland. <laughs> and that, that's as much as I know about the Falkland Islands. <laughs> so I met the regiment on Pebble Island. We were doing close target recce. They flew in and trashed the place. They had a great old time. We were left um, to look after a lot of un- disgruntled and unruly Argentine Air Force officers and we were shipped out by helicopter later as were they and um, and when we came back 16th Air Assault Brigade went allowed the pomp and ceremony um, when we got off Britannia went on the Royal Yacht Britannia yeah really um, but everybody was having parades and ticker tape and running into people's arms and and we got off a set of steps at the back into transit vans and spirited away. And I thought, this is, I like this. This is all right. No fuss. 
And and then that back, back to the cave. That made me <laughs> my mind up. Um, yeah, I'm going in the regiment, and for two years uh, I trained with a really good friend of mine called Ed Macy. So um, if anybody's out there who's avid readers, they'll have read, uh, they might have read two books by Ed Macy. Um, one is called Hellfire. So and uh, the other one is called Apache, and he was an Apache pilot. Yeah, wow. Because he wasn't able to pass the physical to go in the SAS. He had a. We were training together. He was um, with uh, Seven Para down in Aldershot, and he was on his bike cycling, getting his fitness up as I was somewhere else in in the country, and um, and he got run over by. A, a drunken squaddy in a Ford Sierra. No, oh, joking. And he hung on to the front of the bonnet. His bike was destroyed, but then he, f- he slipped off and it went over him. They didn't think he'd walk again, but he ended up flying Apache helicopters. Mm. That's it. You got to have those challenges, haven't you? To yeah. to to be able to get get through this sort of stuff, to be able to overcome and become an Apache helicopter. Yeah, and and one of the weird things with Ed, I don't want to stay on him because he's more famous than I am. Um, <laughs> I've, I've heard of his name. He'll be he'll be lapping this up, no doubt. Somebody will tell him. Um, <laughs> but when he came to stay with me at Hereford, he because Apache pilots look through both eyes independently. Really? Yeah, they That's... they have a thing called TADS. Yeah. which is a tactical display that comes over one eye and they see all this green stuff with heads-up display and data and mm. imagery, imagery. But the other eye sees everything that it, that we normally see. Wow. So when he dreams, his eyes is doing two different dreams, sometimes one in colour, one in black and white, different scenarios. Oh, shit. And, and they call it Apache headache. Um, when they're learning to do it, Prince Harry had to do the same when yeah. he was in Apaches. And, and they all do. And they call it Apache headache. And, uh, of course, my sons thought it'd be really funny to get frozen peas and put them on his eyes while he's asleep and see which <laughs> way they roll while he's dreaming. And um, that was uh, quite that's all right, entertaining. How old are your sons? One is 30. Yeah. He was an ex-Royal Marine. He's just got married. Are they over in UK? No, both here. They're both here, are they? Yeah. We all landed here within a week of each other. Yeah, well, how long have you been here? Eight years. Yeah, I've only yeah. been here five years. The eldest came out of the Marines and got a job in a bar in Brisbane. Uh, yeah. He was um, he had a back injury in the Marines, so they sent him to Canada to to to, to Canada to um, British Batus, British Army Training Unit, Suffield Batus. Yeah, and he did load of skiing and load of climbing and got his back mended. But he also did a lot in the hospitality industry and thought, "Oh, it's all right, I can do this." <laughs> and um, so he went to Brisbane. And he worked in the Valley, 42 Valley, as a cocktail bar manager. And he'd learned all the tricks with the breathing fire and yeah. chucking ice about and God knows, making cocktails. The youngest, Boomer, ironically, has always had an Australian nickname, Boomer, like a kangaroo. <laughs> um, he was England under 16s at rugby. Yeah, well. well. And his, his mum brought him out to Africa and he went to St. John's in Joburg, um, which really put an end to his England rugby career. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm however, pretty sure that would do it. He landed at UWA here in Perth. Yeah, nice. Within a week of us landing. and um, Is he still playing? He's playing over in Sydney. He, yeah. he works with the Foreign Office and he's doing some marketing for British Chamber of Commerce and Australian Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. So one's a pacifist and a scholar. And the other one's an absolute lunatic, and a big lunatic at that is your size. And um, they're both your size. Yeah, okay. 
I can't wait to meet the father. <laughs> yeah. I was there at the birth, but I'm still not sure about the conception. <laughs> I don't know, maybe his hands, hands and the arms are there, just the rest <laughs> of you. Three hands on, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Back anyway. to where we were. So we were, you were coming into the, into the regiment. Yeah, I, I went You in. trained with uh, Ed Macy. But we'll go back, back, back to your story. Me and Steve Maguire got in. Yeah. Steve later became um, commanding officer of the SAS. Yeah, wow. Of all four squadrons. Um, I, I then picked up an injury and was laid up for a while. So they transferred me across to 2-1 regiment, which is a reserve regiment. There's 2-1 and 2-3. Um, it's not sneaky beaky stuff anymore. It's well known. So, um, in the public domain and, um, but we're still living in Hereford and traveling up to, um, King Standing in Birmingham, which is where my office was. And, uh, one day a guy came in and he knocked on the imaginary door cause the buggers took the, took it off the hinges <laughs> and, um, for what reason? Well, they, Unfortunately, at the time, I was Captain Kirk, <laughs> and um, and it was a lot of press ups if anybody called me either. Yeah, okay. Um, so it was bare. There was, there's, you know, there's no pomp and ceremony in the regiment. It's, mm -hmm. You earn your you respect. If you're called sir, that's not very good. You've got a lot of work to do. If you're called boss, or or your nickname, that's all right. Yeah, okay. And um, and this guy came in and said, "Take a seat. What's your problem?" He said, "Well, you're my problem." because you're called Bear. I said, and? And he just looked at me and went, well, I know you're called Bear. Um, goes without saying, you know, I get to know all my people when they come on board, but why is it an issue? He said, we can't have two bears in the regiment. I said, well, I'll have to shoot you in the face then, because th then there'll only be one. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and he said, do you know why I'm called Bear? I said, of course I do. Your name's Edward Grills, Edward Teddy, Teddy Bear. Bear, Bear Grills. Grills. <laughs> and I said, and you're a quality operative. I tell you what, you've got you've got the X factor of whatever it may be. I wish I could bottle it. Um, and and I was his boss. So you were Bear Grylls for boss. a few months. Yeah, I was. I was. I, was a, I still am. I was a huge fan of Bear Grylls from know, eighteen. No, probably a bit older actually it would have been 22 when I was at university I went to some of his shows but I read all his books he was yeah. he was a fascinating guy fantastic got... yeah um, he still uh, does survival techniques with the regiment does he yeah he still contracts in um, but not as there is another guy out there you probably know him I, I've not seen anybody who knows him out here but Ray Mears yeah, yeah. He's a very big survival expert. Yeah, I used uh, to watch Ray Mears, Ray Mears um, survival shows. They weren't like, it was funny because you got obviously bears very entertaining. And, and whereas uh, Ray was like very kind of like, this is how you do it. And yeah. it's kind of like very, uh, what's the word? It could be boring in terms of if you didn't like There's learning the about crafting the arts of survival. There's not going to be a red carpet when Ray Mears starts a series anytime on TV. Yeah. Whereas with Bear, you're going to get bells and whistles. And um... What about Ed Stafford? You heard of him? Yeah. Yeah, Ed yeah. Stafford's great. And, and he's, he's also amazing. Yeah, walked um... the whole length of the Amazon. That was... Incredible. Insane. Yeah. Had two years to do it. <laughs> it's like non-stop. Yeah, I'm just nipping out. <laughs> like, Sometime. He went and spent, I think he's done some couple of TV shows in the UK recently. Like, he spent the whole of last winter um, you know, pretending to be a homeless guy 
and like recording what goes on in the, the homeless scene to try and help what's going on, like to abandon his family, like for <laughs> his family, just like say they kids, say they wife, I'm just off for uh, six months and you won't see me. And like, and you can't often you can't tell people where he's going as well because it's you know, it's a secret kind of like thing that he's doing. Yeah, cover. You, you, you don't want to burst the bubble and spoil it. Um, yeah, so Bear Grylls, yeah, he's a class act operative he knows his stuff he'll do anything um he's steadying down a bit now because he's had a couple of pranks as we all do mm. uh and his ropes guy is probably one of the best guys that i've ever climbed with yeah really and um you know you, you'll see bear jumping off a cliff onto the top of a pine tree and then scaling down it to 100 feet below it's the only way down and he's got to jump 14 15 feet to get there his ropes guy has already done that and set himself up on the rock face <laughs> with ropes and cameras and God knows what. And um, so, yeah, I'm particularly enjoying the series with famous people. Yeah, takes yeah. them out of the comfort comfort zone, and 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 I'm really impressed with some of them who think just get on and do it. That's it. Yeah, especially some of the women, some of the women actors, and uh, I mean, they 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 you can see what kind of things that they go through. For method acting and that sort of stuff. Not my cup of tea. I couldn't act to save my life. Um, nah, nah. I think I, I enjoy, um, I've just started doing improv comedy classes. So it's like just kind of just on the spot, creative, just come up with some kind of storyline. So I'm, I'm starting to immerse myself into that kind of communication, creative creative side sort of things because yeah. it because in a way life becomes a bit of an act in especially when you're uh, you put on the spot it's like you all of a sudden in the middle of nowhere you don't know what to do it's like what do i have to do it's like you have to kind of just come up with something and go with it right you know and coming up in the army and even in a coal mine to start with the one-liners as a reaction to something that was just completely outrageous and ridiculous was is, is always something that i've been good at yeah i'm i'm a little bit quick with that. I can tell I've got about six jokes. <laughs> Go-to guys for my jokes. and um, But they're all completely irresponsible and unacceptable in today's day and age. You're not um, going to tell us any then? And probably not on air. Um, they're quite shocking, all of them. Um, they break boundaries. And uh, they, they, they do what Borat's doing to, to, to film now. Yeah. Um, but my other talent is um, nonsense poetry. Really? I can write the most inane crap about any subject. And um, and I remember a team that I worked with when I first came, with, came over here, they bought me a, a leather ledger and um, it's full of them. I've got about a thousand. And the one that I only ever got published, I gave it to a friend who was at uni. He was pushed into the army, but didn't last. And it... His father and grandfather were all in the army decades before and, and millennia before. Um, but he bailed and didn't want to do it, and he grew his hair long as a as a protest, and you'll know his name straight away, John Cooper Clark. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, I, I wrote one called, can I say can I say it on air? You can say whatever you want on air. Well, it's called Twat. <laughs> yeah, of course you can. And it was... It we'll was, just put explicit um, on there so no children listen. Yeah, uh it was it was for Keith Burns, my original sergeant. Yeah, and it was when he was retiring, and I wrote this thing. And John Cooper Clark liked it that much that you can have it. It's nothing, you know. Do what you want with it. And he recorded it, and he, he actually spruced it up a bit as well. And it's it's really funny. But um, Keith Burns, bless him, he's up there waiting for me with a pickaxe, <laughs> no doubt. 
303 rifle, but uh, <laughs> find something to wallop me with. Um, yeah. So I, that that was something that I learned in the early days and just found myself writing mm. this rubbish that is funny. Is it a way, is it a way for you to, um, it's not going to be distracting, but just kind of just have a bit of fun with being creative and just like reflective a little bit as well? Trying to, you know, I, I find people take civilian life a hellish lot serious. Mm. And, and I'm thinking, are you, are you kidding me? Um, you know, I've seen kids running for the border with a pillowcase full of their belongings. And then somebody says, oh, the, they didn't have almond milk for my coffee. And I'm, I'm like, you can aim my head at the desk. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but almond milk is getting a poem today. <laughs> and and I just stop what I'm doing and write one of these wacky poems. and Just taking the piss out of almond milk and the person. That- <laughs> and the person who couldn't get their almond milk today, yeah. And um, I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> so that that was one thing. And then the other thing that I'll probably never, ever be able to do again after this, especially, I've been a best man at weddings nine times, but there's a guy in the regiment in D Squadron, which is my old squadron, and his name is Dave Stanley, and he's been married four times. And last, oh, this year, sorry, in March, he got married for the fifth time, and I couldn't get there. So we did a Zoom best man. Yeah, really. And and because I'm out of arm's reach, I just let rip. And, <laughs> and this was my best time ever. So he'll never get divorced again. <laughs> he'll never let a wife die on him again. He, he'll keep this just for the sole purpose of me not being his best man ever. <laughs> uh, why would you do that? Five different mother-in-laws and me being best man again. I mean... Come on. Maybe it's just you're that good. He just wants to get divorced and then get married because he just wants you to have the best man. <laughs> give, yeah. give him another speech. <laughs> so he, he likes me to um, Jimmy Carr. Yeah, really. When I'm doing the best man speech. Um, but I explain to everybody, please don't take it personally, unless it is. <laughs> that's, the, well, that's the whole point of jokes, right? It allow, <laughs> you know, jokes allow you to speak the truth, but like be like jestful about it and kind of just be... Um, Turn it into something that it's like, ah, oh, there's a moment of, ah, oh, I had a realisation that that's, he's actually speaking the truth, but it's funny at the same time. Now, there's comedians over here who get all different cultures into, their, into the room and then they're just completely racist the whole time. But people pay and it's, they get sold out. It's because people like to hear people joke about truthful things that are, are nonsense and just just idiotic or to, to, to lower it down to, um, from being so serious. And, and there could never be any malice in it. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't say anything like I said. I'm not, um, I'm, I'm a, a crusader. I'm there to protect people, mm. not to hurt them and injure them and, and upset them. So there, there would never be any malice in mine. But like I used to say um, at, at, at Stanless weddings, it was nice to say, well, at least half of you have met me before. <laughs> And that was, it went downhill from there, you know, because they had met me before, unfortunately. <laughs> and and they were always looking around the room to say, who's, whose turn is it this time? So we were, we were, you were at the point where you, so you were a boss of the Bear Grylls. Um, but then, so you were, you were still in serving at that time? Yeah. And uh, so what did you, what made you leave, leave the army or when did you get out? Um, for eight years of the last eight years of my career, I was seconded to an organization called International Rescue. Um, we International Rescue is run out of the UK, out of Harrogate, with that, an office in London. So you're in Ring 112? 
and rather than 999s, 112s, International Rescue? No. No? no it's, uh, <laughs> um, IRC, it's, it's actually called International Rescue Committee. Okay. And they're not going to drop the committee because it's what makes it different to the other yeah. international rescues, including Thunderbirds. <laughs> and, uh, so what, what they do is they facilitate NGOs around the world. So if there's um, a natural disaster, an earthquake or a tsunami or a flood or whatever, or a war or conflict, they'll go and they will act as facilitators and coordinators for many other NGOs, starting with the top tier like Red Cross, Red Crescent, Medicines on Frontier, Doctors Without Borders, same outfit, it's got two names, and, and so on. And, um, and because since 2006... In Tanzania, um, Al-Qaeda-affiliated um, operatives are kidnapped and, and systematically raped and executed six nurses from Belgium and Switzerland. Oh, what? And at that point, the gloves were off. The yeah. game's changed. And NGOs and aid workers are no longer seen as neutral and to be protected by all sides. Yeah, it's okay. a shocking act. And, um, and I feel for the families today, to this day. Um, so IRC decided we, we need to not only, um, do a, a, what we call a vulnerability, vulnerability threat analysis on the ground and do some hearts and minds and some networking and some, what we call culture club sitting under that tree in Yemen, talking mm-hmm. to the elders, getting people on side and bringing revenue back to the locals and letting them do the jobs, security and building the roads and putting back in infrastructure and all this kind of stuff. Um, they decided they also needed to protect protect the people that are doing it, doing the work. Yeah. And um, there are two um, organizations who I cannot name, but there are different levels. One looks after VIPs, exec protection. So, um, and we're talking Queen. Okay. The Queen's level and prime ministers and presidents and top level people. Um, And then the next one is boots on the ground training people to look after the camps and the convoys and the aid and, and the warehouses and the people who, and the medics and, and stuff. So um, that's how I got involved. When I finished and my last day came up, I continued with IRC and just swapped badges. Yeah. And uh, and I've been with them ever since. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Are you still doing that sort of stuff now? I'm grounded since March, obviously. I've yeah. been back out of the country a couple of times. Yeah. And and I did serve my quarantine when I came back. <laughs> Nobody can see me, can they? No. Um, honest, Gov. Um, and then, uh, no, I did I did save the quarantine, but I was up to no no good at the time. Uh, it was through that in two thousand fourteen. I was in Yemen, and an IED went off and turned my Land Cruiser over. Oh, jeez! And I was blown with the driver out through the front window, but the vehicle flipped over and dropped on top of us. Um, But again, it didn't squish us because of the way it fell, but I'm now trapped looking back inside the vehicle and both legs were broken. Um, They connected with the dash, tib and fib were broken. So that was the accident that caused your your knee now? Yeah, and and they, they weren't really interested in looking after my legs because there was other stuff going on. They, they thought I might want to fix <laughs> yeah. first and foremost. And um, 
consequently, the, the right leg still is he's got to bend about four inches down the fib from the knee, the, the tib. And now they're going to break it and straighten it and take pressure off the meniscus on the right knee. I'm still doing stuff. I'm still ignoring everybody and doing <laughs> F, do. F45. There's a free ad. Are you there, Luke? F, <laughs> Luke and, from F45. You're still training him. <laughs> yeah. And um, doing my hit training. I do uh, three days a week. I do two sessions in the day. And the other three days I do one session. Yeah. And, um, and I got a date for my operation today, which is awesome, but I might have to fly back in to do it. Fly back in to where? Here. Because I'm, it's imminent that I'm going away uh, any okay. day. Yeah. So, um, and it, and so now I'm working mostly with um, counter people trafficking. Yeah. I'm I'm a senior rank. Um. So if I'm I'm likely to go back out to Syria, I, I speak Russian now, and um, so I'll be working with the Russian peacekeepers mm. as a liaison officer with them and their um contact with the locals and the locals contact with us so it'll be kind of sitting under that tree again but in syria this time try and calm everybody down um but again sure we see 30 seconds of footage on the news and it's not enough really um 5.1 million people displaced um as in terms of they've been trafficked around uh well they're, they're all refugees in yeah. the camp there's 39 camps along yeah. that border they're not going any further north um, winter's coming. Yeah, we've had the first snows. Um, yeah, it's tricky, and and COVID has not had a massive foothold, but it is causing issues. Mm. But we have layered security, so people have to go through a vetting and letting process to get in beyond the inner confines of the camps. So they have to go through ID checks, and um, uh, we do um, DNA and fingerprints and, and facial recognition and we have a database f for people and um so you're definitely not getting through through with a, with a, a, a doctor's jacket a little badge and a, and, uh, a, and a metal frame on your head then no <laughs> um, but if, but if they are that's the best way to do it yeah. I've, I've done that a couple of times <laughs> I, I did it here in perth i've a, there's a i've got a friend who will definitely listen to this when i tell him his name's terry nichols and he's a boffin <laughs> and um and he, he he talks corporate speak and i have not i can do russian and french is easy but boffin speak and techno corporate speak yeah it just leaves me for dead and i sometimes look at him and say terry what did you just say to me can you write it down um however he's having a, a stag weekend oh six or seven years ago and we did just a bog standard half a dozen of us on a trip around the wine forms of swan valley yeah and and on the second pickup because there was other people on the bus it was a tour um two young ladies got on called ellie and lisa and they were the most fantastically funny people <laughs> i've ever met um and not so much that they're both um oh what there must be a pc name for it but they were vertically challenged, definitely, as I am. But they were way smaller. They were uh, people call them midgets or dwarfs, and I don't know what the correct term is. And I don't think they really care. One's been an actress, and, okay, uh, and a stripper. She's a stripper, <laughs> my god. And um, that, and they were brilliant. And of course, Terry thought I'd booked these two people. And I said, two midget strippers. Thinking, <laughs> Terry. And we had the best day. Um, but at the end of the, the day, they went back to their caravan park 
and we went to the casino to to um, Crown, and we went in a disco, and then security came and found me and said, "Your phone is ringing nonstop." And I went back to get my mobile, and it's the two girls. The responsible. This is this is new for me. Responsible service of alcohol prefects. The, the RSA, yeah, yeah. They're not letting them in because they say they're drunk, and um, and they'll cause havoc. And I'm thinking, well, you're right. They will. They're, they're absolutely monsters. These two girls are fantastic. <laughs> so when I went out to find them, there's an ambulance. There's a bit where the limos and all the posh people drop off near these sliding doors. Yeah, yeah. And there's an ambulance that, yeah. parked up, and there's two people from the ambulance. <laughs> I, think, I wonder if, they, if they'll ever hear this. They'll crack up because <laughs> they know me. But they sat on a little wall with some garden garden around it and what have you, having um, their, they call it smoko, don't they, here? Yeah. The, the sandwiches. <laughs> so I walked in one direction and whipped this green jacket off the door and put it on, did a U-turn and went back. And there's the gurney on the stretcher on wheels on the pavement with all the blankets and the pillows stacked up neatly, A4 size like they should be. And um, so I wheeled it past. I don't look out, out the ordinary now because I look like a paramedic. <laughs> and and I get the two girls and I drag them out the bushes and I, I put them on the stretcher and covered them up <laughs> with a sheet. <laughs> and so you've got, You've got a normal-sized woman with a normal-sized head yes. and, and feet that are only four inches big. <laughs> and you didn't need to... And, and then, of course, Lisa, who's the bottom end, she's laughing so much and she's got this squeaky laugh, which is so effective. Uh, it, it's, um, it infects you, it, it gets into you and makes you laugh more. And, of course, I f- find a big palm frond and I whack her on the head on top of this sheet and, and said to her, be quiet. I said, your head's where the vagina's meant to be. And <laughs> I turned around and all security just stood there looking with their arms folded, big Samoans with big blazers on, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm dead. I'm finally going to get killed. Um, so I failed. Well, your name might have made it in the paper that time, though. <laughs> well, I, I would definitely give him my name as Bear, not my Christian name. I don't do that. I don't like to associate um, anything... Um, that could have come back and buy me <laughs> from the past. But yeah, that was a failure. Failed mission. Planning <laughs> was non-existent. Um, it was all on a whim and execution was off-cocked. <laughs> <laughs> and, if you were to go back again, what would you do different? <laughs> oh, I think I'd, I'd, I'd probably lay a bit of smoke screen down and get somebody else to do it while I was nicking a security guy's blazer. <laughs> Yes, and, yeah. and taking them under my custody. That would have been a, a double bluff, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it was doable, but I failed. And that takes us up to about six years ago, five, yeah. five six years ago. Yeah. And then you've been locked down Locked quite, down quite since. Oh, I'm still getting into trouble. Um, I got knocked off my bicycle three weeks ago near <laughs> the Eagles Nest Stadium. Um, a young kid got it badly wrong. He'd stolen his brother's car and... Uh, he went for a gap that was never there. <sighs> and uh, so I ended up with uh, a couple of cracked ribs and a bit of cartilage shifted and, and a lot of gravel in my left hand. Man, probably you can see oh, yeah. It's all coming yeah. back. And so I got plenty of gravel rash and, uh, oh, you know, he'll learn something from it. He didn't kill me. <laughs> I'm indestructible. So he, he, he was lucky that day. Do you ever see yourself slowing down? No. Um, I I have signed up for the 2022 Clipper 
11 months around the world sailing in the wrong direction and so it's a race of t with 12 12 meter boats 20 okay. people on them and all amateur sailors apart from skipper and first mate so you've not done much sailing at all no <laughs> but you signed up to it mountains south. and snow sounds and, like a um, bit of a big race how long is it expected it's 11 months it goes 11 months okay, yeah, sorry. Um, uk to uruguay and then across the southern oceans by cape town to Fremantle, sydney hobart and then up East Coast via early beach to China, then to America through Panama Canal. Yeah. New York to Dublin to Liverpool. And your your partner come with you? You married? No. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you kind of just like I'm still bare. I still go off into, into yeah, the caves. Have you ever been married? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, my ex-wife's still in Perth, and yeah, uh, I, I I met her for the first time in five years at my son's wedding three weeks ago. Did you really? And you know, um, I, it was it was a nice day. Yeah, nice. And she was just as good as she's ever been. She was sterling, and um, and she knows me inside and out better than anybody. Twenty five years is a long time, and uh, well, yeah, it's most of my life. <laughs> thanks for that. I'm thirty two. <laughs> I've got underwear older than you. Twenty five years. Oh, so, mate, it's been fantastic. This is. It's been, not over yet. No, still going. Go on. What, what, what other stories have you got? Well, I suppose I should wrap with um, how I found out I'm different. Well, yeah, there's a few different questions that I wanted to ask you. So the first off is, the, is what was the clue? Or would that give it away? The clue that your mum left left you, told you on, on um, when, she, when she was passing away. Yeah, she took me to one side. I went to the nursing home where she was and she asked me to do one thing. And, um, and that is to sing at my funeral. And I kind of, what? Say what? Bear says what? <laughs> How do I do that? She said, it'll all come out in the wash. A proper northern saying, um, it'll come out in wash. You'll see. In wash. And on the funeral day, when I walked into church with Annie and the two boys, there was two people singing um, Ave Maria. And I knew immediately that it was my mum singing because she was a great singer. Yeah. And um, then um, when we walked out after the coffin, um, it was the same two people again singing, um, I Walk With God. And it was idyllic. I mean, I'm a big classical music and, and a little bit of an opera buff, but I love classical music and I love pure music as yeah. I see it. And uh, so her youngest brother came to me and said, do you want to know who that is? I said, well, it's my mum and someone. And he said, it's your mum and Mario Lanza. Wow. And I told him the story and he said, well, now you know why. She sang at her funeral and you're the only one out of all 10 kids and 11 now, because I met my half brother for, yeah. for the funeral. I had to go and get him out of prison. <laughs> okay. And the, his warder was an ex-SAS guy, so I had to go and do a deal. Yeah, really? Um, and, and that was it. I, I knew that I had to get singing lessons which i did i was singing in qatar for three years but i wouldn't join the choir because they wear a black shirt mm. i've got a thing about black shirts for people my age not done it's like wearing white trainers Just don't do it all gracefully um, <laughs> don't wear white trainers or black shirts um and again it was only a clue but at that point i thought well but why why me 
And she said, well, you can sing and you'll find out. I found out a couple of things is one, if I sing in my normal voice, it'll wind, every, wind everybody up because I sing like Elvis. Yeah. Okay. Which is a real piss take because Bear Grylls is famous and I'm not. <laughs> and your name's Bear. I can sing like Elvis and he was famous. What's going on? You know? Um, well, maybe this is the podcast that's going to get you famous. Well, it might be the thing that gets me to write in my book yeah. Yeah, with, well, a few, the, with a few poems at the back or spread about in there. <laughs> um, but like I say, I didn't know still it was a clue. But then in 2014, the big issue, my vehicle got turned over in Yemen. Um, I'm in a bit of a state. My diaphragm's ripped open. I've got both eardrums, but not damaged beyond repair, but they were popped, perforated and two detached retinas and some other bits. And they decided that not only did they need um, plasma, but maybe because of some skeletal injuries, they might want to have a look at some um, bone marrow. Yep. And that is only going to be found in the best place with DNA. Not a single of my siblings matched. You're 10. Yeah. I'm not actually, we, we all have the same mother. Yeah, okay. um, and even my dad, who well, I can say I died when I was six, I loved him to bits, and he will always always be my dad. But then they find um, a DNA match, and it's a guy who worked for the SOE, which is Special Operations Executive. Mm. These were the guys who were the forerunners to the real SAS, um, not the Long Range Desert Patrol Group um, with David Sterling, but these were the guys who went behind lines and cause havoc. Yeah, okay. These these were your football hooligans of the Second World War. And um and, and they were breaking up infrastructure and communications and all that kind of, and they had a, a bunch of runners outside of Berlin and there was one of them called Beryl Fuchs. Beryl is spelled B E R Y L. Fuchs is in the German as Fox. Yeah. And he was a German Jew who lived through the war. Jeez. He had three brothers and one wasn't um uh, his faculties went fully intact and eventually he was um captured and executed but the other two lived on beryl was repatriated by the brits to georgia he became and the other two were repatriated to canada and the us um beryl became the professor of music at tbilisi university in georgia he was a musician with Mario Lanza touring the U.S. army bases of Europe. And my mum was a backing singer for him. No way. And for six weeks, they had a bit of a fling and I'm the result. So oh, wow. It was 2014 before I found out why. And then the other thing that um, uh, really sealed the deal, apart from the absolute DNA and, and that kind of stuff, was uh, I realised after nine brothers... I'm the only one that was circumcised. Yeah, okay. And yeah, of course. Because my dad's a German Jew. Yeah, Jesus. And, uh, I never met him. He died in 95. Yeah. My sister Shira was killed in a rocket attack in Palestine in 2004. Um, but I'm delving into it now. And I yeah. have, a, I have a, a very good friend at IRC called um, Svetlana Baranovsky. She's from Moscow. She is um, delving into it and... And trying to find out trying to find things out. for me, it, at, at least from the Georgian end. Trace it all back. And um, we're going to try and find out, see what we can find. And That's exciting. Go back to Jerusalem and find their relatives. And um, That's really exciting. Uh, 
So that is a chapter in itself. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, that's a that's the next chapter. Yeah. That's that's yeah. like yeah. It's unwritten. Yeah. Yeah, you've got the book, but now you've got yeah, you've got the book that you can write. Yeah. Now you've got the book that. And and my two sons know. I told them, and I only told them what I know is um, all's not what it seems. Mm. There's a reason I'm different. <laughs> I remember at the funeral for my mum. You remember? You did, have, have you seen that? Um, there's a company called Avery that prints stickers. Uh, it, um, it makes stickers on paper, and you put them through a computer, and you can print labels and put yep. them on the spines of A4 folders. Yeah. I had one of those sheets in my pocket, and I remember giving it to my siblings and saying, giving them a marker pen and saying, can you all put your name? <laughs> <laughs> can you put your name on, on this thing and stick it on your lapel? So I <laughs> didn't go down very well. <laughs> uh, and I've not seen them since. Really? No. I yeah. Just, I haven't seen a single one of them since. True rivalry. I just... There's no connection. Yeah. And, and I figured it out. Why Yeah, not? yeah. Uh, it all starts from yeah, six years yeah. old. Going, I mean, it wasn't to a wedge. It was just never a connection. It was just not there. It's uh, crazy, that, isn't it? It's, yeah. like a, it's like there's some genetic difference that's, that's hardwired through your biology not to connect. Mm. Obviously, yeah. there's psychological sides of it as well, but there's definitely a biological side Yeah, it's side a case, there. isn't it? It's a case study. Yeah, it is. My, my, well, our, our shrink, our psych, she, she hates being called a shrink. <laughs> um, our psych, Chloe, is fascinated by it. And, and we sit for hours with a bottle of vodka with a couple of the girls who work with us from Russia and a couple of the boys as well. And um, she goes, huh? What? <laughs> notepad comes out. You can be in, a, in a, a pub in Beirut and notepad comes out and she's feverishly writing away. And, uh, Have you been over to Russia? Yeah. Yeah, I, I love the place. Yeah, okay. Um, St. Petersburg, Moscow. Um, usually when I travel with my colleagues, it's Oksana, who's from U Ukraine, and Sergei. He, they're the ones who usually get stopped. A Russian passport has a bit more of a pull, but the Ukraine passport doesn't. So they're the ones that usually get stopped. And it's cost us a flight here and there, mm. you know, some ridiculous dog legs to get to where we want to be, just to... Help them, but in Moscow, I was. It was um, there. There's a an exercise every couple of years with NATO and the British Armed Forces called Operation Northern Lights, and uh, and then there's um, there's an, a, a similar one on the Russian side, and um, they were running a similar operation, and I landed in Moscow in the middle of it, and everything. <laughs> And I had to go and sit in a room and look at two people in ill-fitting suits staring bleakly at me. Um, and the woman spoke perfect English. The guy spoke no English. And and I'm sat with a table like this yeah. on one side and I'm the other. And there's a microphone and a, and a tape recorder. Really? With the levers. The old, the old school tape recorders. And we're only going back a few years. And, and I remember taking my shoe off and I put it in this woman's lap and I went, do you know what? Ivan here has absolutely no idea that we're getting it on. <laughs> I've got a question that I want to ask. Um, it seems like ever since now you're a young kid, you've, you sound like you've been pretty fearless. Probably pa painless is the thing. I, painless? I, I don't do pain 
it, it kind of misses me a bit. Okay. I don't know if it's because I make adrenaline better. Um, I mean, it, we never met on a rugby field. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it would not have been a fair tackle. Yeah. Yeah. And I put myself on the line a couple of times and got broken nose. And I got a few mates like that. Who? What, what position did you play? Oh, I was the gobby one who started all the fights. Nine, yeah. scrum off. Yeah, I can say I got a mate, my mate, my one of my best mates back in the UK, Aaron Newman. He was pretty much the same, small guy, but he could nail people and like got in fights and just like was just rough as hell. And just didn't care. Was- I, I knew because I couldn't hurt. I couldn't really hurt them, um, so I didn't hold back. And um, so fearless. I don't know. Maybe painless. Um, I actually find myself thinking about doing things now. Yeah. And thinking that maybe it's not a good idea. Yeah. Because it sounds like you haven't really thought about things too much. You've just gone that Volunt- there's direction and move forward towards it. Yeah. I volunteered for everything. And um, sometimes I'd get into bother and sometimes I, and a lot of times I didn't, mm. you know, um, I had a fight with the para that cost me six weeks in the nick in, in the army or um, army jail. And, um, the, Dougie Dolan and I, we still talk to each other. We're still, be, we're best of mates now. I don't think we were enemies before, but he was a para. And, <laughs> and they, he, they just want to fight everybody, irrespective of what colour beret. They call everybody crap hats. And, uh, and now I didn't subscribe to that, so we had a fight. And then um, they put us in the same cell. And I waited till he'd nodded off and then reached through and pulled a two kilogram extinguisher off the wall and let him have it. <laughs> so it, it was never going to be a fair fight, but it was, and it was always going to be an ending. But um, I didn't damage him too much. I mean, it was his head for crying out loud. He's Dougie Dolan. You've got damage you're going to do above the neck, not much. Um, but anyway, we were best of mates now. And, but when, when I was in the neck, I figured it out almost immediately. The corporals didn't want to be there. Yeah. In fact, nobody wanted to be. The MPs who ran the show really didn't want to be there. And to be fair, they they were the ones that had taught us to be master criminals. I was going to say, so <laughs> you, you, did, you had some time in prison? Six weeks. Okay. And um, so I'd even figured off, I figured out shift change and... Um, <laughs> so you, you'd gone into prison six weeks, but you figured everything out because just your training you've had, the yeah. way you are. And and um and what they ended up with was a dozen really, really shiny, pristine tiles in the middle of a bathroom, a shower block. And um, so I'd just go and sit with my feet up and just make noises like I was in the toilet if somebody else came in. But um, and I'd study and read books and all that kind of malarkey. But as soon as the shift change came, I'd go back to my little enclave of mm. tiles on the floor and I'd polish them with my toothbrush. And these are the tiles that are now pristine, but none of the others were. I should have finished the whole block. What's the point in that? <laughs> it's uh, it's so like it's admirable to be able to listen to someone who's got so many stories about just just going in and doing stuff and just being like not being afraid to like, be worried about what people think. Like, there's a you know, there's so much. There's so many crap now, you know, political correctness. You, you can't say the wrong thing. You can't do the wrong thing. Like, And it's and it, it always been like that to a certain extent. But to see someone that's just gone their whole life. Break, not Breaking rules. Breaking rules. Not, not, not necessarily not thinking of consequences because obviously there's always a consequence there. But moving forward regardless of what you think the consequence is going to be because yeah. it's like, okay, this just is it in, would you say it's intuition? I I think so, yeah. And, and it's a, a kind of... 
like because I'm not the biggest in the patch, I have to be louder okay. and do stuff to be no to be noticed, and um, so I kind of do things off cocked and think, wow, that's funny, and and never with any malice. I couldn't do anything with malice, and and um, there's a guy who will have played against you when we went down on tour from um, Mansfield Rugby Club. Okay. And, uh, and his name's Ron Greenwell, Rondo. And um, he's not actually, actually his real name is David Greenwell, but it was Ron Greenwell. And when we came back from Amsterdam rugby tour, he'd, gave, he'd given me space cake because I was going to Africa for two years. <laughs> and he gave me space cake and they went away and had a tattoo put on my backside. Of course, it's a little teddy bear with a party hat, spilling his beer as usual. And um, I didn't know what they'd done at the time. But when we're coming back, Rondo was getting married at the weekend. We got back on the Tuesday. I'm going to Africa on the f- Thursday. So I'm going to miss the wedding. So just as a giggle, I said, hey, let's pull in and see Linda Welsh at the Mansfield General Hospital and tell Rondo, because he had to give him some cake that he'd given me. <laughs> and he's out like a light. And I said, let's, let's. So we had his leg put in a cast. And we... <laughs> we told him he broke his leg on tour <laughs> and he had no reason to disbelieve it because he's got a leg, his leg in a cast. <laughs> so on the Thursday I left on the Monday morning, it, Monday night it's training. And I rang from a call box at the rugby club in Africa in Belcombe where I was. And they said, Oh dear. I, I only asked how the wedding went and they said, Oh, well, I said, you told him, you did tell him, didn't you? He's like, no, He's gone on honeymoon with it. He's gone to Mallorca with his leg in a cast. <laughs> he got married with his leg in a cast. With, with the, they had to cut his suit leg and pin it. Why? To make it, to get it in. And I came back two years later and, um, and I got off the bus in Nottingham and I'm going to go to the village and then get the next bus next morning back up to Catterick. And um, I see Rondo in Tesco's. So I, I went, Tesco's had turnstiles back then and you could only go in one way and out the other. It was great, mm-hmm. amazing, well above its station. But so I climbed now with coronavirus, you, know, you can go yeah, in yeah. one door and out the other, that's what you need. That's that. Turnstiles so more turnstiles back, back again. I should have done it. And, um, but I climbed over this thing and dropped my Bergen and went running across Rondo in the freezer section and there he is. And, he, and we met in the frozen peas, stood in them. And um, he's one side of the, the, the thing and I'm the other and there's a centre display with gravy and stuff and we hugging each other and how's it going and blah 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 and we get I jumped off and I run round and I give him another big hug and I felt this tap on my shoulder and I turn round and this woman cleaned me out with a a, a family pack of marrow fat peas <laughs> right on the point of the jaw and I went down like a tree this is his wife and that was his wife <laughs> Yeah, I'd never met her. <laughs> she uh, found out that it was all just a load of bullshit. She, as soon as she heard my name, Bear, she <laughs> dropped everything and come running around looking for me <laughs> and just grabbed the nearest thing. It could have been a box of Quality Street, but it was a bloody thing <laughs> peas. And uh, she walked me. That's brilliant. Yeah. Fuck you, full of stories. That's great. Um, wrapping up. So I didn't want to get a kind of a, a bit of advice for the, the, the audience, like, Obviously, this whole conversation has been amazing. It's been awesome to hear all your stories, and I'm, you know, I'm really grateful that you've 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 come over and and talked to me because it's not been one of my usual ones where I'm picking and. 
picking questions out. I'm just listening. I'm just like really enjoying just just being here. But I've learned a lot about you know what we've talked about just moments ago. Just 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 not being fearless and just just taking action, just doing stuff. Like, with, what is there any any advice that you've spanned across your whole life or any kind of I guess ethos that you live by? that you would tell to people or say to people, to younger people, to how to make the most of life? Yeah. Um, I think the, the first one is don't be afraid to do it. If it's going to make, don't, don't do it to hurt people. That's wrong. Um, we're all built on, on moral foundation of whatever religion we are. So if you're going to do something, do it and make people laugh, but don't get no, no when to stop. Um, second one on the back of that though, just in case, oh, don't be afraid to say sorry. And look people in the eye and say, oh, I got it wrong. Um, yeah. I, I really apologize for that. And and I'll 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 put bail up. <laughs> um but really life lessons, um don't don't wait around because it's not it's not like you can get on a bus and go to your next headline issue. Just do stuff. Um just get out and do it and and enjoy it. You know, um, see the planet for what it is. I've, I've become very, very green and environmentally friendly in my, my latter years. Uh, we've making an awful mess of it. And, um, yeah, you know, think about why we're here. Mm. Keep that moral grounding. By all means, have a laugh. Yeah. Go and spend a, f- a weekend with my youngest son in Sydney and and, and get twatted and laugh a lot and and then wake up and thinking oh christ how much does that cost me <laughs> um the other thing is is never to be afraid of of looking at authority and challenging um many times i could have been on a different path just by doing as i was told because this is how people were programmed mm. to work telling people how to do things and what to do and when to do it um and if you don't think it's right don't go and at least have a conversation with them. Talk to them, listen to them, have some empathy, figure out why they're doing what they're doing and, um, and, and why they want you to do it. And what's the end result? What's the consequence? If it doesn't add value, what's the point? Challenge. Yeah. yeah. Challenging everything that you do. Yeah. Um, but do it in the right way. Don't be aggressive. Don't get into a scrap. Um, that kind of answers one of the questions. I always have two questions on this podcast that I always close with. It's like, how can you be taking your performance to the next levels? And I think that's, you've already answered it in terms of questioning authority. We're, we're put into schooling systems that box us. And then we go into a university that creates your education. And then you go into a, an employment where you put in a box and it's like, okay, you're in this comfort square and you're just constantly just being knocked back by authority saying, no, this is how it's done. This is how it's done. But if it doesn't yeah. feel right or you feel there's a better way that it can be done, voice your, voice your opinion. Mm. People say to me, how can I get into doing what you're doing? Um, I wouldn't recommend getting into the protection side, but certainly there are, there are jobs out there with NGOs that are crying out for people. Okay. Um, you know, we, you know, we employ, f- f- I think upwards of 8,000 people in America. There are people needing aid in, mm. in North America right now. And there are refugees on the borders in camps in America. It's shocking. It does my nutting. Um, what aren't we learning? 
Um, but when they say, well, how can I get into doing what, what you're doing? I say it's two-step process. One is decide you want to do it, discuss it with your family and make sure that it's good for everybody. Yeah. And the other thing is to then stop what you're doing now. Quit. Otherwise, you know, quit, take a step forward. Um, Brummy Stokes, um, a good friend of mine from the regiment, um, died a couple of years, bless him. He did Everest twice. He lost all of his toes on oh. the second one. And, um, and, and he used to say, don't, he was a Brummy. Yeah. Uh, Brummy Stokes, he would be, wouldn't he? Um, <laughs> and he'd say, don't complain about the dark. Why not light a few more candles? That's one of my favorite sayings. Um, another one is from a girl at the gym who's younger than most of my underwear. And, and she says, um, um, it's not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. If you've not danced in the rain, get out there and do it. It's the best yeah. thing in the world. Do it naked. Who cares? Yeah. And then there's a saying from Russia, my third favorite one. Um, and it's really close to me. They have a saying, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger mm. except for bears they will kill you <laughs> and there's bear we'll have to close on that bear but um is there anything that you want to say on this podcast to to promote your do you, i don't know if you want, want people contacting you or anything like that or whether they can or, or anything then that's okay if not it's just um, usually well, I, people just bump into me and say do you know so and so and as soon as they have my name bear yeah or my Russian name, Mishka. Mishka. Um, they know straight away that somebody's talked about somebody called Mishka or Bear, and then they want to ask. So there's a big enough networking just by talking and listening yeah. to people. Cool. And, and not judging them on face value and blah, yeah. blah, blah, and first, you know, first impressions. Um, I, I haven't any plans. I do an, an after dinner speech, mostly military circles, called a life less ordinary because it's only taken me decades to find out that it is it's a life, life, life life that's what i call it it's my, my little after dinner thing about my life is a life less ordinary life less and, ordinary and and it'll be the name of the book i'm pretty sure yeah um and i, I everybody keeps saying why don't you write a book it's coming it's coming yeah if you don't get killed before yeah <laughs> somebody else can do it then there you go autobiography thank you very much for coming over i really really appreciate you um taking taking the time out to come and have a chat it's been really enjoyable and i hope everyone else has enjoyed the the chat thank you so much <laughs>